0: Qualcomm is really a mysterious story right now. Shares down more than 2.5% today after a nearly 11% tumble yesterday. A question is, whether their business model is being fundamentally challenged right now uh, in court, and whether basically uh, they have an existential threat that is looming down on them, Shira Ovide joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios, technology columnist with Bloomberg Opinion. So, just lay out the issue here. There was a court case that was particularly punitive. Why?
2: Yes. So this was a court case that the U.S. Federal Trade Commission brought. It was an antitrust case. And then um, overnight on Tuesday, uh, a U.S. District Court judge ruled that basically um, the way that Qualcomm has conducted business is, in fact, a violation of antitrust law. The way that the company, uh, basically, if you want Qualcomm's chips, you need to license um, a set of of patented technologies from the company. So that no license, no chips. And also, even if you're not using Qualcomm's chips, you still need to pay the company for these kind of collection of patents that are really essential to the functioning of modern smartphones and other computing devices. And the judge said that's not legal.
3: Boy, I have to admit, I was very confused by the judge's ruling today and surprised, and I guess so was the market. The stock sold off so much yesterday because, boy, when they had their Apple resolution um, a couple of weeks ago, the stock rallied, and I thought, okay, that's it. The Qualcomm the story, it's off to the races, but there was still the FTC issue out there. So this is something that's still fundamentally on the radar for this company.
2: Yes, and frankly, I, I thought the same thing about the Apple case. So Apple brought suit against Qualcomm over... Almost exactly the same issues that the uh, the judge ruled on this week. And so you're right, when Qualcomm and Apple reached a legal settlement, I think a lot of investors thought, well, that's behind them. But look, this issue about Qualcomm's dual-sided business model, the selling of chips and the licensing of its patents and the links between them, it's been an issue over and over and over again in repeated litigation in repeated regulatory um investigations and fines all over the world it is kind of a fundamental aspect of qualcomm's business but it's also under constant assault
0: well and so i guess that then the larger question here is What is Qualcomm as a business without the stream of patent revenues? Because you were saying, uh, we were speaking earlier this morning, that those patent revenues account for more than 50% of uh, the firm's income.
2: Well, I guess we may see what what Qualcomm looks like if if you sort of untangle the two halves of of the company's business. But we should say that look, this may not be kind of the nuclear option in this in this legal ruling that Qualcomm has said disagrees with the judge's decision. Of course. The company has asked for an expedited appeal. I assume the the litigation is going to the appeal process is going to take many years to resolve. They are there may be ways for Qualcomm to sort of adjust its relationships with customers in a way that doesn't mean dumping one or, or, or the other half of its business model. So there could be some kind of middle ground that is not kind of Qualcomm blowing up how it does business.
3: Is there any chance for a settlement or the fact, or have we just passed that point now between the, you know, Qualcomm and the FTC?
2: I, I mean, I think the F, you know, since the FTC won this case, I can't I mean, I don't yeah. know is is the short answer, but I find it hard to believe there would be a settlement. But again, there could be um, some kind of resolution, assuming the judge, judge's decision holds up on appeal, that falls short of Qualcomm having to blow up everything and subject itself to government scrutiny, uh, government oversight for seven years. So we were talking about how Apple uh, had their
0: lawsuit against Qualcomm. Who is the biggest sort of I don't want to use the word victim since that's loaded, but who's on the other side of some of these suits who's most angry?
2: Well, certainly the customers, including um, including smartphone makers like Samsung and Apple and Huawei, the, the latter two, had various litigation pending uh, against Qualcomm. And look, I think what the FTC argued in its litigation was that the ultimate victim is the competitiveness of, of the U.S. chip industry, that the judge agreed that the way that Qualcomm does business, the way it was able to sort of leverage its power in the chip market to sort of overcharge basically for its patents, it forced other companies Either out of business, um, other potential competitors to Qualcomm forced them out of business or kind of hindered their ability to compete. So ultimately, you know, the competit- the competitiveness of U.S. technology may have been the ultimate victim here.
3: And one of the things I remember, if I can think all the way back to the Apple settlement just a few weeks ago, uh, they were hailing it as, you know, this is kind of pro 5G or pro technology. Um, is that an argument you think Qualcomm's going to make here as they try to you know fight back against this ruling
2: yeah I think the 5g argument is going to be very interesting so we saw last year the US government stepped in to essentially block Broadcom's proposed um, takeover offer of Qualcomm that would have been a hundred billion dollar plus deal and the government the US government's reasoning was if Broadcom succeeds in this takeover Qualcomm is going to be gutted, they're going to slash costs, and that's going to hurt Qualcomm's competitiveness in 5G, this next generation of, of wireless standard that is considered sort of this essential national security priority, which is weird because, I mean, look, it's a technology standard, but the, the U.S. government and the Chinese government, too, have now basically made 5G this political football. And so one thing that I wonder is, will the U.S. government step in uh, in this litigation that the FTC won and basically seek to blunt it again, citing the ability of Qualcomm to remain competitive in 5G?
0: I have to wonder what Qualcomm's side of this is, because I hear what you're saying, and I thought that it was a really salient comment that you made. The competitiveness of U.S.
2: technology may have been the biggest victim here. What does Qualcomm say to that? Well, Qualcomm's argument is the opposite, that it says, look, that their business model is not unusual, that the chip industry is competitive. And if you look at some, uh, some estimates of market share, uh, Qualcomm is losing some market share, which shows that there is uh, competition out there. And Qualcomm's basic fundamental point is, look, the way that we um, have set up our business model is including this patent licensing stream, we plow that back into tens of billions of dollars in research and development spending to come up with the next big technologies in the future. And look, it is true that particularly in areas um, around cellular internet technology, Qualcomm has been a leader and there would be no smartphone industry without Qualcomm.
3: It's interesting. I think if I'm a, I guess if I'm a Qualcomm investor, I just have to live with this litigation risk going forward. That's kind of the business model, just licensing technology. And you're always going to have that issue, I think.
0: Or you're going to bet in the Trump put with 5G. And that I think is <laughs> really going yeah. to be a big bet underpinning some people who might dive in uh, and buy the shares as they fall today.
3: Yeah, interesting. Uh, Shira day thank you so much for joining us. Uh, once again, Shira's technology Commons for Bloomberg Opinion. Uh, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive uh, Broker Studio.
0: Paul, we like to laugh when company after company blames <laughs> the weather for disappointing earnings. Uh, but it turns out they may not have that same excuse going forward, at least if Cameron Clayton has anything to do with it. He joins us here in our Bloomberg Active Broker Studios. He's the general manager for the IBM Watson Media and Weather uh, Unit uh, with IBM. And Cameron, can you just first start uh, by how IBM and the Weather Channel are using artificial intelligence to help these executives Executives get away from just simply blaming the whims of weather?
4: Well, thanks for having me. Watson and artificial intelligence is really about a big data. And so just to give you a sense of the scale of the data. So on Wednesday, uh, we had 34 billion data requests of our infrastructure asking about weather. And the reason the, that number is so large is because of all the tornadic activity we had you know, this week in the in the Midwest. Uh, but when there's that much data being generated every single day, the only way to s- sort of get insights out of that data to help people make better decisions, to help integrate into their supply chain, et cetera, uh, is using artificial intelligence. And so that's where Watson uh, has come to bear, and, and it's just something that wouldn't be possible without artificial intelligence.
3: All right, so t- let's talk about this Weather Signals product. What is it and... Who are you trying to sell it to, I guess?
4: Yeah, so we're basically selling it to to enterprises around the world by industry. And so whether you're a retailer, right, trying to sell uh, inventory. So I'll use Home Depot as an example, right? And, and the Tornetic activity this week, uh, they've got inventory of tarpaulins, but they might be in Los Angeles or in Florida. They're not in Kansas and Oklahoma where they need to be. And so we can tell them ahead of time where to deploy their stock. Uh, Similarly, you know, we help drive consumption, right? So weeks in advance, we can say, you know, beer sales are going to increase by 13% when weather conditions are X. Uh, And so that ends up integrating into all kinds of companies, into the supply chain uh, for the logistics, as well as the stock, but also how to staff your company.
0: So I guess that one thing that, as you talk, sort of surprises to me, surprises me. How is this so much different than looking at the weather and saying, "Oh, there's going to be a big storm that's going to be forecast to come. Everyone's going to go to the local grocery store and buy off, you know, everything that they possibly can." I mean, haven't companies been able to do that forever, or not forever, but for you know, decades?
4: So, so companies have had access to weather data from us and others for. You know, decades uh, but this is really about making very specific recommendations of decisions that they should make specifically for their business. Uh, and so it integrates into the different software they use already in retails. A lot of retailers use Tableau as a, as a software tool. Uh, it integrates into that and it makes specific recommendations of exactly what to do. How many people should you have come into work in your office? tomorrow uh how many people should not come to to work on saturday um and so you know use this weekend as a long weekend for for travel for example so we will actually in advance help airlines you know change their flight schedules to accommodate the what we know is an increase in traffic uh that's coming tie that to the weather data and make it very prescriptive right this flight going out of this airport to this destination uh, needs to be adjusted by thirty minutes, you know, a week or two in advance.
3: So, give us a sense that this weather signals product that you're talking about that incorporates AI. It's a relatively new product for you guys. What's been the uptake, and just give us some examples of maybe some companies who who have you know chosen to go this route and kind of what they use it for specifically.
4: Yeah. So, you know, uh, the the biggest retailers uh, that I probably shouldn't name, but uh, I, I, essentially using it today. Uh, and so retail is probably the the largest category for weather signals specifically uh, right now. The second big category is uh, aviation, right? So they're adding it to existing solutions that we provide in aviation. Uh, And then, you know, we're also bringing it all the way up or all the way down the supply chain, if you like, uh, to agriculture as well. And so we're starting to see large scale farms uh, using it to help make decisions on the farm in addition to, you know, retailers and, and transportation coming.
0: It's so interesting to me because most recently you're chief executive officer and general manager of the weather company Mm -hmm. uh, and including weather underground, which I check every morning when I have to take the kids to school and have to figure out (laughs) how painful it's going to be. And I guess that I'm wondering uh, whether you see the future of weather forecasts as being part of this is is sort of generating revenue from actually helping be prescriptive to businesses uh, in a way that perhaps is different than just looking at the hourly weather forecast.
4: Well, I think one of the, one of the things that's, you know, interesting to me and I, I, get asked about all the time is accuracy, right? And so 15 years ago, uh, weather forecasting was about a, not much better than a coin flip. It was about 55% accuracy. Jump forward to today. It's about 86% accurate. Uh, in the last year where well, the accuracy has improved more than in 10 years prior. AI is a huge part of that Uh, and so we hope that we're going to be able to take these recommendations for decisions all the way down to individuals like you, right? Is little league practice going to be cancelled and you know this in the morning you don't find out 30 minutes before you you know have to adjust your schedule uh, and every decision in between.
3: Cameron Clayton thanks so much for joining us. Cameron's the general manager, IBM Watson Media and Weather joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio.
0: Paul, well, I really can't get over the statistics that uh, this statistic that automakers globally have anna- announced at least 38 thousand job cuts in the past six months. And I really, I wonder what this says about auto sales going forward and how much they are poised to decline. Joining us now, Michelle Krebs, executive analyst at autotrader.com based in Detroit. Uh, Michelle, thank you so much for joining us. Let's start there. How much do you expect auto sales to decline going forward? And we're talking on a global basis. Um,
5: Well, we expect them to slip a little bit. We do not expect any kind of collapse in the market. But we do expect it to edge downward. Uh, you know, we've been on a great run here, almost 10 years of uh, year-over-year increases. And, uh, you know, it's it, the market's kind of peaked. We expect uh, sales for in the U.S. to be down 2 or
3: 3%. So, Michelle, what's the impact? I know it's probably early, but what are you hearing from some of the manufacturers and some of the dealers that you talk with about tariffs that seem to be on again, off again for the automobile sector?
5: Well, yes. I, you know, I think everyone would like certainty, and they would like certainty that there, there are no tariffs. Um, we, we see interesting patterns when there's a lot of talk leading up to it. Like last summer, we saw a little bit of stockpiling of inventory, stockpiling of used cars by dealers as they, they thought that tariffs would uh, happen, and then they didn't. And again, here we are in a waiting period uh, for six months, and we, if it really becomes, looks like they will happen, we expect we'll see some more of that stockpiling of inventory both new and used vehicles uh, going forward.
0: So uh, Memorial Day weekend is definitely a big one for selling cars. And I'm just wondering what kind of discounts you're expecting this year, because this has sort of been one big point of contention for the big automakers. How much do you give incentives to people to get in the door uh, versus give up profits uh, and, and rather than just sort of sell things at full price?
5: You're right. Memorial Day weekend traditionally has been a a big sales lift weekend for automakers. We don't think it will be as much so this year because of that overall decline in the market. And the fact that car prices are at their highest level, um, auto loan rates are at a nine-year high, and um, we are not seeing a lot of uh, lathering on of incentives, they're very targeted, and uh, automakers have been showing a lot of restraint in terms of going for profit versus incentives. So there aren't going to be fabulous deals out there uh, for consumers. So we'll we'll see how the weekend ends up.
3: So Michelle, talk to us a little bit about the used car market. I'm always surprised when I see like you know the number of like 60 or 65 percent of people are leaning towards a used car versus a new car. What's the status of that market?
5: Well, it is an interesting market. We focus all our energy on the new car market, which is about 17 million sales a year. Typically, used car sales are almost $40 million every year and a pr- pretty consistent. Um, there's a lot of interest in used cars for some of the reasons I mentioned before. New car prices are at record highs, uh, and there are a huge number of fabulous used cars because we had record leasing. Those cars are coming back onto the used car market, and there's a, a richer mix of the kinds of vehicles. So there's not only cars, which used to be the only thing that was leased, leased, and then um, uh, sport utility vehicles, which are really in favor with consumers, and, and at hugely discounted prices because they're three years old.
0: That's what I was going to ask is the used car values. I know this was something that was really uh, sinking Hertz and Avis uh, a couple of years ago because of the glut of leasing and then the cars that went into the uh, used car market. I'm just wondering whether we've seen a real firming up there of, of those resale values.
5: Uh, Yes, we have. And uh, and interestingly, you know, cars are kind of out of favor on the new car side. uh, And so we've seen a lot of discounting there. But if you look at the used car side, there's that used car prices have actually risen higher because there's such high demand, and of course, uh, some of the automakers have gotten out of the traditional car business, and so there's uh, there's less availability there. So uh, tremendous interest in, in, in used cars, and and that keeps prices strong.
3: So Michelle, you mentioned that the you know the market has really moved. Certainly in the U.S. the new car market to trucks and SUVs, and um, is give us a sense of how sensitive those sales are to uh, changes in gasoline prices as we were just noting earlier today, that uh, oil is down about 5% today. So it's kind of fluctuating. But boy, it just seems like the US consumers, trucks and SUVs.
5: But that's not just the U.S. Uh, globally, the shift is more towards uh, sport utility vehicles. That's true in China. That's true, true in uh, Europe as well. Um, I, I think the automakers don't get enough credit, but they have done an amazing job of improving fuel economy uh, of sport utility vehicles. It used to be that was the reason people didn't buy them. That's kind of gone away. There's, there's not this huge uh, penalty for in terms of... Uh, Uh, fuel price, uh, fuel efficiency, and yet there's a ton of other advantage of, you know, various combinations of uh, uh, passengers and cargo and that higher seating position, which is what everybody likes because they feel safer and they can see better. So it it offsets the advantages.
3: Understood. Michelle Krebs, thanks so much for joining us. Michelle is executive analyst at autotrader.com based in Detroit, While well, the Fed seemingly has navigated the U.S. economy to what can be described as perhaps a soft landing with modest uh, economic growth and limited inflation. To get some insight as to the Fed's thinking, we turn to Danielle DiMartino Booth, Danielle's CEO and Director of Intelligence for Quill Intelligence. She's also a former advisor at the Dallas Federal Reserve, and she's a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Danielle, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, what is your sense of what you think the Fed will do next. I'm looking at the WIRP function that we just chatted about briefly before. Again, a 79% chance for a rate cut by the end of the year. Do you agree with that?
6: Well, it doesn't really matter if I agree with it. What matters is Fed history. And Fed history tells us really, anytime you get over the 50% line, they really start talking about whatever direction it's going to be, whether it's gonna be easing or tightening. Uh, Once you get past 66% probability, it's kind of in the bag. So I, I would be surprised if between here and blackout before the June FOMC, we didn't start to see a little bit more dissent in terms of Fed speak because they have been so consistent across the entire committee. They've had, they've all been towing the Clarita line about we're going to let inflation run too hot. Right now, the market is telling us that there, there's nothing hot about it. Uh, inflation needs a pashmina. It's running so cold and it's looking more and more like, and I think the bond market is telling us, break-evens are telling us that this is not transient and that the core PCE is gonna be pulled down further.
0: So let's dig into that issue because according to the minutes that came out yesterday of the last FOMC meeting, it does seem like members do believe that this is a a transient sort of dip Mm -hmm. in inflation and, and a weakening. Why does the market disagree?
6: Well, it's interesting because not all participants on the Federal Open Market Committee agree. There was there's some, some fine print in the minutes yesterday that said several participants were concerned that inflation was not transitory and that, in fact, Core PC was going to be pulled lower. But decoding Fed speak, participants mean non-voting Federal Reserve District presidents. So, again, I, I think that the Fed wants for inflation to be transitory, But wanting and getting are two different things. When you start to see things like this morning's market composite data, it's a composite. It's at 50.9. New orders in the manufacturing went negative for the first time. I mean, that's about the clearest signal you can get. We'll see if it's validated when the ISM numbers hit. Um, But if you start to see bleeding from this kind of isolated weakness that we've had in the factory sector, sector into services, you will have a downward pull on that core PCE.
3: Let's talk about, I I want to talk about one of your columns that you wrote just recently about the consumers because the consumer is obviously a big part of the economy, a big part of the growth story. Um, But you arguing that perhaps the consumer isn't as strong as maybe we're led to believe. What are your thoughts on that?
6: Well, I think what you need to do is to look at the composition of jobs that have been created. So last October, for example, the, 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 the vast preponderance of jobs created were in high paying industries and by the time we rolled around to the april data you know we're seeing 65% of the jobs being created in low paying industries so it's not going to show up yet in something like initial jobless claims employers have worked so hard to source skilled workers that they're holding on to them for dear life but we're seeing weakness in the number of hours that are worked we're seeing a weakening trend in temporary employment and again Wage inflation has started to come back in as opposed to what most economists were predicting, say six months ago, that we were finally seeing traction in wage inflation. That is not the case.
0: But couldn't you argue, if you look at the consumer's balance sheet, it looks pretty good. Interest payments are still fairly low. The actual amount of debt relative to GDP hasn't climbed that much when you talk about the consumer. Uh, This isn't a bad picture. And yes, we have seen delinquencies tick up with credit card and auto loans, but not necessarily to the extent where you start to get really concerned about something. Couldn't you say this has been a very unusual economic cycle, but one that has actually allowed things to grow and to possibly soften at a
6: slow and steady pace that's kind of healthy it it, it has been but i i I tend to think about the delta and the rate at which servicing household credit has come up is extremely problematic deutsche bank's done some good work on this torsten slock and and right now you're getting to where households are spending so much more of their income to service their debt and that's coming so quickly that that is becoming it's not the absolute level of household debt right. it's,
0: it's 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 the, the rate at which the, the
6: increase is, is is happening
0: i have to wonder though how much is this an income inequality story because how much oh. is this uh, the very low end incurring debt and then sort of trying to cycle and make payments uh, versus an average story a story of averages
6: well you know that's a good point but i would i would go back to a the the economy that we have today Um, And that in many ways, Moody's did an interesting study at the end of last year that said, initial jobless claims are understated by about 20% because we have so many people who were self-employed. We have so many people who who drive for a living. That particular area, the self-employed, is getting crushed right now. But if you work for yourself, A, you're not gonna put an ad out to hire yourself, and B, you're not gonna file unemployment insurance against yourself. So there's an element, I think, that's not being picked up in the averages right now that's harder to see, harder to discern. And you put on top of that the tax season that we've just come through and the fact that I think a lot of middle-income American families ended up not getting a refund but actually having to pay taxes. That was unexpected as well. We've seen, what, a quarter of American families are not have, have decided against taking a vacation this summer those types of anecdotes will show up in the data. I mean, you're not canceling the trip to Disney for no reason, unless the taxes you paid that you weren't expecting to pay were, in fact, your vacation fund.
3: Uh, Danielle, we're seeing wage inflation over the last couple of reports of you know, low 3% kind of range. Mm-hmm. To me, that seems low, given where I think we're really full of, uh, employment. What do you think?
6: I think wage inflation should be much hotter than what it is. Uh, And, in fact, we've seen average weekly earnings. I I prefer to steer clear of average hourly earnings because I don't take home an hour's pay. I I take home a paycheck, which I earn over a weekly period. That particular number, again, since October, has shown serious deterioration and weakening. So...
0: Thank you so much for being here. Honestly, you raise really good points, and especially right now as we look at the market activity with a nearly 80% chance of a rate cut being priced into markets. A real disagreement right now between markets and Fed participants where you've got Fed saying, you know what? Inflation uh, is just simply cooling off as a temporary factor. The market's saying, "Uh uh-uh, we're not buying it. Uh, Danielle DiMartino Booth, she, of course, is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. She's chief executive officer of Quill Intelligence, former advisor to the Dallas Fed. Joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studios.
3: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney.
0: I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz One. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg
1: Radio. The countdown has begun.